So here in chapter 4, Paul is giving his final instructions and encouragement to the Philippian church. And so chapter 4 wraps up an epistle in which he has expressed things like thankfulness for uh, the Philippian partnership in the gospel. He's encouraged them to remain united in the face of opposition. He's encouraged them to serve one another and various things like that. But what we'll find as the letter concludes is that some of the themes and ideas that we've already explored so far in this epistle, they were brought up again as Paul gives the final emphasis to the instructions that he's already given. So with that said, the particular idea being re-emphasized by Paul in this portion of scripture is agreeing in the Lord. Or to say it another way, being of the same mind. We, we looked at this idea last year, and when we did so, we learned that it meant thinking like Christ. It meant being like Christ and sharing a common mindset and belief about the importance of self-sacrifice and humility. And this has indeed been one of the major themes in Philippians. In verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then a little ways down in verse 5 of the same chapter, he reiterates, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the one mind that the Philippians were to have was the mind of Christ. And so that's why half of chapter 2 is dedicated to teaching the Philippians how to think like Christ. Paul taught them the example of humility and self-sacrifice displayed by our Lord. How he looked to the interests of others rather than his own interests. How he made himself a lowly servant and set aside his rights in order to serve others. This was the mind of Christ. This was the way of thinking of our Lord. And so it's fitting that Paul would once more draw on this idea of agreeing in the Lord or being of the same mind or thinking like Christ because in this section of his letter, Paul is dealing with the unfortunate reality of conflict and strife among believers in the church. And so the lessons learned from examining the humility of Christ would be necessary if the Philippians were to achieve and maintain unity. So with the importance of Paul's teaching about unity in mind, what we see as we come to chapter 4 is that there was indeed some kind of conflict going on in the church at Philippi. I'm of course talking about this conflict that Paul addresses here between the two women, Yodia and Syntyche. Now it's likely that this specific conflict was on Paul's mind as he wrote Philippians. Perhaps it compelled him to emphasize unity and same-mindedness as a central theme in his letter. And so it is with the weight of everything Paul has said so far about unity and of being in one accord that he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Paul's implicit command is that rather than there being conflict and strife among believers, there ought to be peace and agreement in the Lord. So what we'll see tonight is that the remedy Paul provides for uh, conflict among believers begins with agreeing in the Lord. Or to put it another way, Christians must agree in the Lord if there is to be peace in the church. And so that's a central or big idea for tonight. Christians must agree in the Lord if there is to be peace in the church.
So let's have a look at this specific conflict that was going on in the church at Philippi. Now the first thing I should say is that we get no specific details about what was going on between these two women. <laughs> this could either be because uh, the seriousness of the conflict hadn't reached a stage where it would be necessary to provide the church with specific details about what was going on, or because the church was already well aware of the details, so Paul saw no need to restate them. I think the latter makes more sense, that the church at large already knew about the issue, and so Paul saw no need to you know, reiterate and outline exactly what was going on. I say that because we know from passages like the one in Matthew 18 that there is a protocol of escalation to be observed when it comes to conflicts among believers. If your brother or sister has sinned against you, speak to them in private, and if they don't listen, bring in a few other brothers or sisters to help resolve the issue, and then failing that, the matter is brought before the church. So you see, it wouldn't make sense to say that the matter hadn't escalated to the point of being brought before the church since... This entire letter was written to the church as a whole. If you go back to chapter 1 of verse 1, you see that it was written to all the saints who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. And also consider the fact that this letter was likely read aloud to the entire congregation. So whatever the conflict was, it had reached the point where it was both appropriate and necessary for Paul to address it publicly. Now, this is sad because it meant that Yodia and Syntyche were either unable or unwilling to sit down together as siblings in the Lord and resolve the issue. This is sad because it likely meant that their closest friends were themselves either unable or unwilling to bring them together and make peace. And that shouldn't be the case in any church. Ultimately, it took the apostle himself, a man who was hundreds of miles away, in prison no less, to write a letter in order to entreat and exhort both of them to resolve their conflict. It should never have gone to that point. So now I have to ask, are there any unresolved conflicts festering here at Covenant Reform Baptist Church? Is there someone here that you have a problem with? Someone with whom there's some sort of relational schism that keeps you from drawing closer to them and deepening your relationship with them? Brothers and sisters, why haven't you resolved it? And for those of you who don't have any outstanding conflicts with anyone in the church, that's great. But do you know where there is conflict and do you turn a blind eye? Can you imagine if there was conflict and strife and relational turmoil in this very church and it went unresolved to the point that Pastor Chris either had to take the time to get on a video call from his office in Toronto right, and, 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 or fly all the way down here from Toronto to get us to resolve the issue? It shouldn't come to that. Now, how would that look? What would it say about us? It shouldn't have been so in Philippi 2,000 years ago, and it shouldn't be so among us today. It ought to bother us when we allow conflicts to linger. So as I said, we don't know exactly what was going on between Yore and Syntyche. But it's enough to know that there, is, there was indeed unresolved conflict between the two, and it had reached Paul's ears. Well, what does Paul tell the women to do? Well, he tells them to agree in the Lord. What exactly does that mean? Well, the same word that is translated here in chapter 4, verse 2 as agree is the same word that was used in chapter 2 when Paul was talking about being of the same mind. So this is why he said that ideas that we already looked at will be coming up again. So let's look back at chapter 2 from verse 1. 
Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it's clear from chapter 2 that being of the same mind meant having the mind of Christ. Or to put it another way, it meant thinking like Christ. Someone who has the mind of Christ or thinks like Christ doesn't act out of a selfish desire to get ahead while leaving everyone else behind. They don't pridefully think that they're better than everyone else. They're humble and they view other people as being more important than themselves. Their needs, their problems, and so on, they actually care about them. And so they're not just concerned with helping themselves, but with helping other people. And furthermore, when it comes to serving others, they don't seek to cling to their rights. They're willing to accept loss so that others may gain. They're willing to make themselves uncomfortable so that others may be comfortable. We should be reminded of Paul as he writes in 1 Thessalonians uh, 2 verse 9. How he did physical labor to support himself financially so that he wouldn't be a burden to the believers around him. Yet as a minister of the gospel, he had the right to be supported by the church since his primary job was to preach the gospel and lead the church. But he waived his rights out of a concern for the church and in order to serve them. So considering all this, when Paul said to Yodia and Syntyche, agree in the Lord, while using the same word that he had used for having the mind of Christ, he was saying, I want you two women to think and therefore act like the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, we would miss the significance of what Paul was instructing if we simply said that Paul wanted the women to agree on the particulars of whatever situation had started the conflict. It goes deeper than that. Let's suppose for a moment that each of the women kept sheep. And let's suppose that theirs was a dispute over what time each woman would bring her sheep to the local well to get water. Maybe they were crowding each other and needed to agree on what time each of them would bring their sheep to the well to avoid congestion. Let's just say for the sake of argument that that was the issue. Well, Paul would not have simply wanted the women to agree on the best time for each of them to bring their sheep for water. It would have involved that, to be sure, but it wouldn't have been only that. It goes deeper than the practical details. It goes down to the level of our thoughts and motives. Whether or not in our dealings with others, we are thinking like Jesus. Paul's command to agree in the Lord is fundamentally a command to us believers to relate to each other as church members and family in a way that is driven by the mind of Christ. It's driven by a desire to be humble and self-sacrificing in our dealings with our family and the Lord. It's ultimately about whether or not we model the example of our Savior. So this is why Paul took the time in chapter 2 to hold up our Lord as an example. You can't avoid strife and have a loving unity with someone else 
when you think that you and your needs are more important than them and their needs. And you surely won't be able to resolve conflict if that's how you think. Let's consider again the hypothetical scenario of Yori and Syndiki each having had their own flocks of sheep that they wanted to water at the same time from the same well. The two women were never going to be at peace so long as they both believed their sheep were more important than their neighbor's sheep. And they surely wouldn't have been able to compromise if they were unwilling to make sacrifices in the best interest of the other as opposed to their own best interests. Perhaps it would take Yoria bringing her sheep to the well in the afternoon as opposed to the morning, even though that would have been inconvenient for her. But the only way she would do this is if she was motivated by love for her neighbor. So this is what having the mind or attitude of Christ requires. That when two believers agree in the Lord, it means that they both think and act in a humble and self-sacrificing way toward each other. So I say to all of us here tonight, if indeed you are one with Christ and belong to Christ, then this is how you ought to think. It is a necessary part of being united to Christ. It's a necessary part of being a Christian. Sharing Jesus' thoughts and attitudes. So think of the conflicts that you've experienced. Past ones, present ones, whether they're with uh, people outside the church or fellow church members, your spouse, your friends, anyone. Think of whatever it was that was causing the friction. Were you being humble in the face of it? Or was pride causing you to think of yourself more highly than you should have? Were you looking out for the best interests of the other person? Or did you want to have things your way? Did you see your own sin in the matter? Or did you only want to point the finger at the other person? Brothers and sisters, recognize that we have no excuse for the unchristlike attitudes and mindsets that fuel our conflicts. The prideful, selfish way that we sometimes interact with each other, we have no excuse for it in light of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. After all, he was sinless. He was perfect. And yet he, being equal to God, humbled himself to serve us. He endured homelessness, hunger, fatigue. He endured the faithlessness of the people around him. He endured lies and slander, rejections, beatings, even murder. All of this to rescue us while we were yet sinners. And all of this when he had the right to all honor and all praise and all glory. All of the riches of both heaven and earth belonged to him. Comfort and bounty were his. He was God in the flesh. But if he who was innocent could set aside his rights to serve us, then certainly we who are guilty and humble ourselves in light of the mercy that we have been shown. Surely we have no excuse for being prideful and selfish when we've been shown so much grace. Just as we have received the humble sacrifice of Christ, we must give humbly and sacrificially to others. So remember this. Any understanding of conflict resolution in the church must begin here. By understanding that unless we think like Jesus, we will never be at peace with each other. Now so far, for the most part, this sermon has been framed around the idea of two believers who are in conflict, coming together to make peace. But it's interesting to note that Paul doesn't only address the two women. He actually gives instructions to a third party regarding this conflict. Look at verse 3. It says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women 
who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So first off, who is the true companion that Paul asks for help? Well, the Greek word that is used is pseudzogos. And most commentators think this is actually a proper name. So Paul is likely asking a person named pseudzogos to get involved in reconciliation between the two women. What this shows us by implication is that bringing about and maintaining unity in the body of Christ is a community effort. If it is that two believers are either unable or unwilling to come to a resolution, then other believers are to help them. Now, other believers don't necessarily get involved in order to make a judgment on the situation and say who is right or wrong, but definitely they can help facilitate constructive conversation or act as a fact witness to the things done and said. So there are ways that having another person present in a conflict can help calm things down and get people communicating and moving towards peace. So the point is that Paul does not condone the notion that conflict between believers is only ever a private issue between the two alone, but instructs that others care for their disputing brethren by helping to facilitate peace. Now, admittedly, this is a notion that goes against our individualistic culture. Some of us will have an automatic negative response to the idea that it is, at times, appropriate to seek to help resolve other people's conflicts. I got nothing to do with me. Not my business. That's how we tend to think. But you see, the Bible says otherwise. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that every church member is to pounce on every dispute at the first sign of trouble. You know? <laughs> Certainly people should be given the room to work out their issues privately. Jesus actually tells us this in Matthew chapter 18. But at some point, if there is no movement of either side towards peace, then it really is the duty of those around the two in conflict to help them. In light of this, there are two paths of temptation that we must avoid going down. The first is the temptation of those of us who should be helping our brethren to distance ourselves from the conflict. We may not want to get involved. And there could be several reasons for this. We may feel intimidated by the idea of confronting someone else's sin because we don't know how they'll respond. Or maybe we do know how they'll respond and that's why we're intimidated. We may feel unequipped to handle the situation due to the nature of the conflict. Some disputes can get very complicated. We may feel apathetic towards our brethren. We may not believe it's our business. We may tell ourselves, I've got my own problems. I ain't got the time to be living with somebody else's problems. And the list of reasons could go on and on. I won't be able to address all the reasons that one may have for wanting to distance themselves from other people's conflicts, but I can address the few that I just mentioned. With regard to feeling intimidated, that's just one of those things we're going to have to push through if we're going to help and care for our brethren. Our discomfort should not make us ineffective when it comes to the work of practically loving others. And actually, when you think about it, it's similar to evangelizing, similar to sharing the gospel. We would not think it acceptable for a Christian to never share the gospel with a stranger because they felt uncomfortable. We spread the gospel despite our discomfort because we understand that it is absolutely necessary to do so if it is we genuinely care about the lost and care about God's glory. So let me offer some help for our intimidation and discomfort. 
When we preach the gospel to someone, we stand upon the authority of scripture. We know that scripture is true and we know that the gospel has the power to change even the hardest of hearts. This is an extremely encouraging truth because it allows us to speak the truth without the pressure of worrying that we are not being convincing enough. We know that the Holy Spirit does his work through the gospel message and not our smoothness of speech. Neither does he do it through our charisma. So similarly, when we go to our brothers and sisters and ask them why they are warring with each other, and then exhort them to agree in the Lord and be at peace, we also do this upon the authority of Scripture. And the same word of God that changes the heart of the unbeliever will work in the heart of the believer. The same gospel message that transformed the unbeliever's heart by proclaiming the forgiveness of sins in and through Christ and proclaiming the love of God in sending his son to die on the cross to rescue us. That same gospel message tells the two warring brothers or sisters that they have been made one in Christ. It tells them that they are disciples of Christ and ought to love each other as a testimony to the world. It tells them that Christ Jesus has defeated the power of sin in their lives. And so they're no longer slaves to selfishness and pride. That same beautiful gospel tells us that Christ Jesus is coming soon. What reason do we have for the frustration and anger that causes us to fight with our brothers and sisters? So you see, when we come to a conflict with gospel truth, we come with power. Power that works on the heart of the believer. That should give you confidence. If our conflicting brethren are indeed saved, eventually, maybe not right away, but eventually, they will repent and seek reconciliation. So my point is, don't be intimidated. Be motivated by love and trust God to work upon the consciences of our brethren. And what about not wanting to get involved because the situation seems too complicated? Well, you don't need to know or understand all of the details of the issue in order to encourage your brothers and sisters to seek reconciliation. Let's say there's a financial dispute. You know, money is a serious thing. You don't need to be able to sort out who gets what amount of money or be able to understand all of the legal ramifications and so on. It can be enough for you to remind them of the scriptures as it relates to their willingness to seek peace. Colossians 3.13 says that we are to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, we are to forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And Ephesians 4 says, we must bear with one another in love. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Furthermore, Paul writes that each of us are to speak the truth with our neighbor, for we are members of one another. Though we may be angry, we must not sin and allow the sun to go down on our anger. We must not give opportunity to the devil. So you see, because of that overarching truth that we are to bear with one another and that we are literally members of each other, part of the same body in Christ, it isn't acceptable for us to remain at odds with each other. It isn't acceptable for us to cut off contact and, and not speak truth to each other while remaining in anger. Regardless of the complexities of the issue at hand, this remains true. So we who would make peace should be encouraged to, at the very least, encourage our Christian family to reconcile. Even if we don't ourselves know how to solve the issue, we can still do this. 
what is of primary importance is the willingness of both parties to make peace. So if we can at least facilitate that among our brethren, then we have done well. With regards to having apathy towards our brethren, saying, it's none of my business if my brothers and sisters are odds. Or saying, I have my own issues to deal with first. But Paul has already addressed this quite plainly in chapter 2. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if you're tired, I'm sorry, you've got work to do. Neither of these two excuses can be valid in light of this text. We're supposed to follow Jesus' example and care for each other sacrificially. It's going to cost us something. It means giving our time to listen and converse. It means giving our attention, our prayers. It's the labor not just of our body, but of our mind and spirit as well. Remember that our Lord said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now I don't think any of us would deny that we are to love one another. I think the difficulty comes though, when we fail to recognize what exactly is involved in loving each other. Especially when the standard is loving each other just as Christ has loved us. When we consider the extent to which Christ loved us, it's easy to see just how sinful it is to turn the blind eye to our warring brethren. Consider this. Christ in love went to the cross to bring us into fellowship with God and with each other. And he paid a great price to do so bearing the crushing weight of our sin and the wrath of God. But yet, here we are, witnessing our brothers and sisters at war, which is destroying their fellowship with each other, and grieving the Holy Spirit, and we don't care. That's not right. Ignoring conflict is unloving, and it is opposed to Christ's goal of unifying us all into his body and bringing us into fellowship with God. Conflict robs us of the unity that Christ worked so hard to secure. Let it not be said that by our actions or inaction that we are opposed to the mission and work of Christ. We need to pray and ask our Heavenly Father to awaken us from our apathy towards our brothers and sisters and show us all of the ways that we should be loving them. Now all of that was the first path of temptation that we must avoid going down. But the second path, uh, that regards those who are in conflict with another brother or sister. Let me explain that again. The first, the first path of temptation regards um, if we see other people in conflict. Right? But the second path of temptation we must avoid regards who themselves are in conflict with another brother or sister. The temptation here is to respond with hostility towards those who are attempting to facilitate peace. Response is like, it's none of your business, or who are you to tell me what to do? I won't spend a lot of time on this, but as stated before, such responses are out of place given the nature of the church as a body consisting of members of one another. It is my business. It is your business. It's all of our business. It goes against 
those, those, those responses goes against Paul's express statements about how we are to look out for and help one another. So we will be wrong to respond to the loving attention of our brethren with disdain and dismissal. Now I know that all of this won't be easy. Navigating the intricacies of human relationships is hard. People can be easily offended when you're trying to help them. And on the other side of the coin, people who are trying to help don't always go about it in the right way. And ironically, this may even lead to more conflict and more problems. Discernment will be necessary for sure. But what is also sure is that these issues must be faced if we are to help one another as Paul instructs here. We have to do it. Lastly, I want you to note Paul's gentleness and encouragement in this matter. Even though he has taken it seriously since he called out the two women publicly by name, we should realize that he wasn't trying to be harsh or to embarrass them. Look at how highly he speaks to them in verse 3. Yes, I ask you, also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What Paul is doing here, by the way he writes about Yodia and Syntyche, is gently encouraging the two women to reconcile. Look at how he says that they labored side by side with him. Paul here is appealing to the fact that these women were once united as workers in the gospel, as true and sincere believers with their names in the book of life. Paul is subtly and gently pointing out the sad irony that these women were once side by side. But look, now they're odds. So Paul reminds them of their great past unity as if to spur them on to regain it in the present. Anyone reading Paul's admonition here should be moved to think, why should those who share a love for Christ and have shown this dedication to Christ through laboring together for the gospel be enemies? Why should those who have a share in Christ and are united to him not also have a share in each other and be united to each other? Upon hearing this, the hearts of these women should have been moved as their former unity was brought to remembrance. And thinking upon it, each of the women should have said, this is my fellow worker in the Lord. This is my partner in the gospel. We are part of Christ and a part of each other. I must make peace. This is my sister and my friend. Her name is in the book of life just like mine is. Our names are both etched in the palms of the hands of our Heavenly Father. We are both loved by Him. How can I hate her and be at war with her? I must make peace. Paul was convinced that these believers were genuine in their acceptance of Christ. So we can be sure that his words convicted them and stirred up their hearts towards reconciliation. That's expected of true believers. So now, we who are here tonight examining this exhortation must likewise have our hearts stirred up and be moved towards reconciliation and making peace with our brethren. Remember, Christian, this is what it means to agree in the Lord. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ and think like Christ. As I close, I say to those who are not believers in Christ, please understand that conflict with your neighbors or workmates or family 
is the least of your worries. This is because you are in conflict with the creator of heaven and earth himself. You are in conflict with Christ Jesus. Please don't think that I've simply told you to try and get along with people. No. The scriptures say that you are at enmity with God. Your sin has put you in conflict with him and you stand condemned. The wrath of God remains upon you because you have broken his laws and are living in rebellion to him. If you continue in your disobedience and conflict, you will face his judgment, which is eternity in hell. But there is good news. God, being rich in mercy, has made a way for you to have peace with him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's Romans 5 verse 10. Jesus has reconciled those who believe in him to the Father. He has made peace between God and us, resolving the war that existed between us. He did so by living in righteous obedience to the Father, by offering to God that which we should have offered. He then went willingly to the cross, being nailed to it and left to die. In doing so, he bore our sins upon himself, taking the punishment that we deserve, drinking the cup of the wrath of God that was meant for us. He died and was laid in the tomb, but three days later he rose from the dead. He came to life again, having crushed the conflict between God and man and winning the war against the forces of darkness. And this same Jesus ascended into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the power on high. One day, he'll return and finally, completely, put an end to all conflict, be it physical or spiritual. Nation will no longer rise up against nation, nor neighbor against neighbor. Neither will there be war in our hearts as our flesh fights against our spirit. We shall be made new. We shall be at peace. All war, all strife will be ended. In light of this sinner, repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. Turn from your sin and trust only in Jesus for salvation. Be at peace with God and be joined to his people. And may we all be at peace with each other as we agree in the Lord.